Hello and welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Gary Spence, former Managing Director of Brown Consulting and Acting President of the Queensland Liberal National Party. Welcome to another edition of the Arate podcast. And before we begin, what do you think of the introduction music? That's by a very good friend of mine named Simon Gardner. Not surprisingly, the song is called Sunny, and you can find that on iTunes or Spotify. I'll also put a link to his music in the show notes. So here we are again for another episode of the Arate podcast. And for those people who haven't listened before, let me just start by explaining Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential. Or as Homer used it in his writings, the idea was around where heroes gather to realise their full potential. And Fiona and I, the managing partners of Arate, have always been excited about the opportunity of exposing new and upcoming C-suite executives and non-executive directors to the wisdom and learnings of those people who have walked the path before them. So the Arate podcast was created to enable us to showcase some of these people so that if you have aspirations to achieve similar or even greater outcomes in your own career, you can listen to this podcast and hopefully pick up some interesting information that can help you to accelerate your career to its full potential. Briefly, Arate Executive is an Australian executive search company that's been operating for just under seven years. And we provide research-based headhunting solutions in order to fill C-suite and non-executive roles for our clients across Australia. We have particular services which are significantly cheaper than those of traditional global search companies. And I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you if you have any recruitment requirements that we can assist with. I'd also like to invite you to join our free LinkedIn community, the CEO Incubator, where you'll get the opportunity to network with over 1,400 of your peers across industry, as well as getting access to opportunities that we're recruiting before they go to the open market. So let's get on with the show, and I'd like to introduce to you our guest today, Gary Spence. Gary Spence has over 20 years experience as a senior leader within the engineering, infrastructure and urban development consulting sectors. He was appointed Managing Director of Brown Consulting, now rebranded Calibre Consulting in 2001, and led the company through a period of record growth culminating in its sale to Calibre Global, a privately owned company in 2011, which subsequently listed on the ASX in 2012 becoming Calibre Group Limited. Gary's strategic leadership and business acumen saw the company grow from 40 staff in 2001 to around 650 staff in 2015, with nine offices across Australia, seven offices across New Zealand, as well as offices in Singapore and Jakarta. Ground Consulting is one of the largest built environment consultancies in Australia. Gary is also the acting President of the Queensland Liberal National Party, having had an extensive career working within the LNP, helping them to achieve their successes within the Queensland environment. He's married and he and his wife enjoy travelling internationally with a particular orientation to going to the leading red wine regions of the world. 
I hope you enjoy this conversation with Gary Spence. Gary, I really appreciate you coming on uh, the podcast. Uh, as I was explaining before we started, really the intent here is just to have a conversation about your professional history and you know the, some of the key achievements and milestones along the way that have allowed you to achieve what you've achieved in your career to date, uh, really for the benefit of people who are listening to hopefully get some wisdom from those who have walked the path before them. So what I usually start with, Gary, is just having a uh, brief conversation about, you know, where it all began, you know, where were you born and what was your family like and, you know, those early formative years? Yeah, well, I was I was born in in, um, in Brisbane. I'm 50, 50 years old, so born back in 1965. Um, my, I've got two, two younger brothers. Uh, my father was a, a bank johnny with the Bank of New South Wales, as it was back then, it's Westpac today. Okay. And uh, back in those days, if you worked for, for a bank and I guess school teachers and other professions were the same, uh, you transferred all over Queensland if you wanted to progress your career. So as a child, we lived in Ingham and Mackay, Townsville, went to Toowoomba and then and then back to Townsville. So I uh, lived, uh, lived all through regional Queensland. And how often would you have uh, in each location? Uh, typically only a couple of years. Um, my earliest memories was when we uh, lived in Townsville. I don't remember Ingham or Mackay. That was just a little bit too long ago, right? Um, but uh, but only only a couple of years in each each place. But then we got to Townsville and stayed there for six or seven years. Uh, moved to Toowoomba, um, were there for four or five years, and then and then back to Townsville again. So, um, being a, in some ways, I consider myself a bit of a Townsville boy, and uh, was very happy with the result of the football the other I night. Bet. And so you mentioned uh, brothers. So you you've got a uh, uh, how many people in your family? Yeah, um, mum and dad, and uh, who are both both still with us. And right. uh, and I've got two younger brothers. Uh, okay. One of my brothers is a school teacher at Toowoomba Grammar, and uh, and another brother works with the public service in Canberra. Okay. And when you were uh, young, and your dad was obviously very focused on his banking career, did your mum work as well, or was she a domestic engineer? No, no, she uh, did a little bit of both. Okay. So uh, in my earliest recollections are that she was uh, focused on the home duties but then she went back and became a, a mature age student doing a bachelor of arts and uh, once she finished the bachelor of arts she worked at the um what was then called the darling downs institute of advanced education out in the uh, western suburbs of toowoomba uh-huh so it's like a tafe was it um, well, it's now a full university, but in okay. the, a, a little like uh, QIT has become QUT, right. uh, DDIAE, I think it was, has, has now become the University of Southern Queensland. Right. But back in those days, it was an institute. So where was uh, high school for you, Townsville? Uh, Toowoomba State High School. Right. So I went to uh, primary school in both Townsville and Toowoomba. Yeah. But by the time uh, I got into high school, that was uh, that was in Toowoomba. And that was uh, boarding or living with mum and no, dad? No, li- living with mum and dad. Okay. So uh, right Toowoomba okay. State School, which uh, the locals know as Mount, Mount Lofty. Okay. Uh, yes, I went to Mount Lofty High. Um, right. Up on top of the hill there at um, in Toowoomba. Okay, great. And then um, when you were going through school, did you have any kind of part-time jobs or uh, did that all start to happen once you finished high school? No, my, my first ever paid job, um, other than pocket money, of course, but my first ever paid job was was lawn mowing. So okay. as, a, as a 14, 15-year-old, I used to mow lawns for, um, for a dollar an hour right. back, back in those days. So that would have been about 19... 19- 80, I guess, perhaps a little bit earlier. And uh, and my claim to fame was I bought my, myself my first ever decent watch from the money that I, right. I earned out of uh, out of mowing lawns. Have you still got it framed on the wall? No, it's, sadly, it's <laughs> uh, it's it's long gone somewhere or other. Uh, probably, uh, I remember those big chunky digital watches back then. Was it one of those? No, or? it wasn't. This was possibly even before digital watches. Oh, right. I, I, I don't know. But okay. um, no, that was, I, I think it was about $35, which was, 
from my perspective, was a lot of money to pay for a watch back in 1980. But, that's um, 35 lawns. It is. Yeah. 35 hours. That's right. right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. good on you. And so um, finished high school and then uh, into university or into a, a career? No, no, I actually uh, went into – I left school as a 15-year-old okay. to um, to become a cadet draftsman with an engineering firm up in Townsville. So right. I finished uh, finished high school. My dad transferred again back to Townsville. And uh, rather than going on and doing senior, back in back in 1980, um, it wasn't, uh, wasn't as common for everybody to do uh, grade 11 and 12. So I actually uh, left school to become a, a cadet drafter with a firm called McIntyre and Associates in Townsville and, uh, and studied uh, at night to do the senior equivalent, okay. which is what I needed to do to then get into what was known as the Associate Diploma of, of Civil Engineering. Right. Um, ultimately, I ended up uh, dropping the Associate Diploma and enrolled in the engineering degree, uh, yeah. but, but by then, I'd, I'd uh, as an eighteen-year-old, I'd I'd moved back to uh, moved to Brisbane, and I've pretty much lived in Brisbane ever ever since. I moved to Brisbane so that I could I could go to university at QIT. Sure, and so uh, you moved to um, to start your work in Townsville because you knew your dad was going there, or did your dad go there because he knew you were going there, or was it completely unrelated? No, no, my, my dad got a job with uh, Townsville Permanent Building Society, okay. and as a fifteen-year-old, uh, obviously too young to uh, leave home. Right. So um, when when mum and dad moved, um, my brothers and I went along as well. So right. uh, so I went to Townsville, um, and uh, as a brash young fellow, I sort of. Uh, uh, Put it on my parents to, to leave and, and and start working in engineering. Yep. And um, I don't know why they agreed. To be honest, I at, at, today I don't think anybody would agree for their um, for their son to leave home at fifteen year uh, leave leave school to do a a, a drafting cadetship. But sure. but things were a little bit different back back in those days. And oh, that, and, and and that's what I did. And um and uh, used to ride my push bike. Uh, into the TAFE College at night to do the senior the senior equivalent. And and what was it originally about drafting or engineering that you were excited about? Uh, earning some money. Right. Earning As some money. to any other... No, well, well, I was always very good at, at uh, mathematics at school and I was always very good at tech drawing at school as well. So um, the... Um, the cadet draft drafting role seemed to put those two th- those okay. two skills together. Okay, great. And so um, uh, you came down to Brisbane. You uh, started your university studies part time still. Yes, yes, that's right. My, well, my parents actually then moved back to Toowoomba again. So okay. I, I was only uh, in Townsville for about a year or so. Right. Um, and so my parents uh, moved back to Toowoomba. Um, the um, senior management at McIntyre Associates were kind enough to ring one of their friends in an engineering firm in Toowoomba. So I then, as a 16-year-old, moved back to Toowoomba to work with a firm called Far and Everett, uh-huh. a, a, again as a, as a cadet drafter. Right. Um, ch- changed my um, my enrolment status at that to um, external, mm-hmm. and that didn't really suit me. So after after a year or so in Toowoomba with Far and Everett, and by then I was uh, I was 17 years old. I decided that I needed to, to go to Brisbane so that I could attend classes at uh, at QIT, which right. is which is the reason that I that I came to uh, came to Brisbane at the okay. time. And then when you while you were studying uh, your undergraduate, were you working at the same time? I was. I was working with a with a company out at Turinga that, that that was called ETS Engineers. Okay. okay. So uh, ETS is still going still going strong today. Right. So and I was with them for for, for quite a quite a few years um, before uh, before leaving leaving them to um to, to move on to uh, other other engineering firms to progress my uh, my career. And you were with them whilst you completed your university studies. Well, as it happens, it's a little bit complicated, uh, Richard. <laughs> but um, as it happens, I, I never ever finished the engineering degree. Right. Um, I did go back to, to uni more um, as a mature age student 
and did a master's in uh, applied law. I saw that. And, and a master's in business administration. But yep. I, I got about three quarters of the way through the engineering degree and decided that um, I was really more focused on the business side of engineering than the technical professional side of engineering. Sure. So um, whilst I, I started life as a 15-year-old cadet drafter and um, – 15-year-old cadet drafters empty the bins and sell the raffle tickets for the social club and make sure, uh, you know, make sure that the office is neat and tidy and do all those sort of odd jobs. Yeah. Um, started life as a 15-year-old cadet drafter and um, found, found my way eventually to becoming managing director of Brown Consulting. So, but, but along the way, my focus changed from um, being an engineer's engineer, if you like, to someone mm-hmm. who actually really enjoyed the profession and the business side of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I gave the um, undergraduate degree in engineering away without finishing it, mm-hmm. uh, but then went back to university um, uh, about 15 years ago to, to, do, um, to do the two master's degrees. And, and what do you think it was, you know, uh, what, what, were there any particular moments that really brought to your attention, hey, I need to take my career into more of a business leadership role? Can you think back to any particular incidences that uh, sparked that for you? Um, I was actually very lucky to, to work for some um, people as a young fellow who who gave me um, every all the encouragement that I needed to to progress my, my career. So uh, it would have been very easy, I suppose, to have remained um, in, in the design drafting profession, and um, and you can have a very fulfilling career as a as a as a design civil engineering designer, uh, designing roads and bridges, and uh, being a structural drafter and so on. Um, so that's a very worthwhile career. But for me, um, I, I really enjoyed the cut and thrust of the business, and I had a, a number of um, employers who who gave me every every encouragement to uh, to get involved in the business side, the the marketing, the sending of invoices, understanding the importance of of positive cash flow and, and so on. So um, I guess they must have seen seen something in me that um, was eluding me at the time because sure. I was probably only 24, 25 years, years old um, back then. So uh, I, I moved more across into the into the business side. And then I guess some, some years later, it, um, I, I felt that I felt that it would have um, that there'd be some real benefit if I was to if, was to round my career off with some some further education. So that's why I went back and and did the masters in law, where, and I focused in um, in construction and town planning law because that they're the, they're the two areas of law that are quite relevant to engineering and construction. Um, and as soon as I finished that, I, I, I did the MBA, both of those at the University of Queensland. Mm. I note from your CV that you are you started in your role with Brown in '92. Yeah. So you were well into your role with Brown before you went back to do that education. Well, I was. Um, the role with Brown was was one as uh, the regional manager here in Queensland. Right. So, so I was the first employee in Queensland. I, I'd, I'd left another engineering firm who who had sold out to a, to a large foreign company, and um, and I and I just felt that, that that my career wasn't going to progress in that environment. So, um, I ended up joining uh, what was then called WP Brown and Partners, but uh, today uh, or more recently was Brown Consulting, and and um, in more recent months has rebranded as Calibre. But sure. Um, so I, I was employee number one uh, in Queensland, um, uh, and uh, grew grew that business over a number of years. And um, but when uh, the managing director of that business, uh, who was based in Canberra, uh, retired, uh, the board were uh, kind enough to ask me to and take on the role of managing director of the group. And we we moved as a consequence, we moved head office to Queensland to Brisbane. Okay. Well, uh, certainly, uh, I'm keen to understand a lot more of that. But let's uh, step back to 1992. What yeah. was it about the Brown opportunity? I mean, you're here in Brisbane. They're not here. Yeah. Um, 
no doubt they were taking quite a educated risk in employing their first person in Queensland. Mm. And likewise, you're taking an educated risk joining a business that had no footprint here at that stage. You yeah. Tell us a bit about how all that came about. Yeah. Well, Richard, I was only 27 years old. So I guess uh, I didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't know enough to have any fear. Right. So so I was, I was basically fearless, I guess. Um, the Brown business had one of their clients who had uh, bought some property, some development sites in Queensland and, and were willing to give the Brown Consulting business a go if they had an office here. So um, the executives of Brown at the time um, got some advice from some local people that they that they trusted us to as to who who might be on potentially on the radar, huh. um, and and so uh, I, I don't quite remember now, but somehow we, the two of us were, were put together. Right. Um, and before I knew it, I was the um, I, I'd st- I was the employee number one in, in Queensland. But I mean, just to give you an idea on some of the challenges that that, uh, that never occurred to me at the time. I mean, when you're when you're employee number one and there is no business, you have to go out and buy a stapler. You've got right. to go out and buy a photocopier. You've, you know, all those things that people take for granted when they start a new job were things that uh, that I, I had to. I had to deal with from the very first day. So basically, the job started on a Monday. I had to find an office. I had to, I had to find stationery. Um, it was it was a very very full on time, but a very very. Uh, int- I mean, I look back now with great affection to that because it was um, it was a great a, a great experience. And of course, the Brown Consulting business in Queensland is now probably 150 people. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a, been a pretty good ride for the organisation in Queensland over that time. Sure. And so back in 1992, you know, you've stepped into a role, no doubt you've got plenty of petrol in the tank yeah. and uh, lots of enthusiasm. You know, how did you, what were some of the early things that you did to really start to grow that business? Uh, well, I, again, I was very fortunate that, um, that I... I had been given the opportunity from previous employers um, to go out to attend uh, industry events and and to effectively become uh, to become known among in the, within the industry and and to get to know uh, people in the industry. So uh, I knocked on an awful lot of doors. Um, again, as a 27 year old, you can be quite brash in some of the things that you say and the enthusiasm that you that you demonstrate. So I suppose at the time there was a a couple of developers who who may have been unhappy with the. Uh, clients that they with with the consultants that they were using and decided to give this brash young fellow a go and um, you know so one job leads to another and leads to another I, I was fortunate to have a a property developer known as Nev Pask yep. as uh, as someone who who supported me very early on mm-hmm. um, and, and Nev has a, has something of a reputation as a as a hard taskmaster and and my experience with Nev is that is that he is a tough business person but he's also a very loyal and and fair person as well and I think um, I got something of a reputation that if you can keep Nev Pask happy then you must be doing something right right and, and so because um, you know Nev and I got so close and Nev was so kind as to as to support me as the business was was kicking off um, that uh, that built my reputation as well and other people I think came came to Brown Consulting in Queensland um, simply because we had Nev Pask as a client and they thought well as I said if if you can keep Nev happy then you must be doing something well. Sure and I, I know from your CV and uh, from our conversations in the past yeah, during your time with Brown, I mean, there were a lot of you know tremendous achievements around mergers and acquisitions, and, yeah. and taking the business uh, internationally, and you know the eventual uh, sale of Brown. Um, you know, when you look back over that time, what do you think were some of the attributes that you had that enabled you to really? Uh, 
grab the reins of that business and take it to its full potential. Yeah. Well, we um, the, the business had grown fairly modestly for the first for the first um, decade or so after I joined. Um, we uh, the business got to be uh, about uh, about sixty or seventy people strong when when I took over as, as managing director, and that would be around fourteen years ago. So nineteen. Um, 1991 or 2001 rather yeah. uh, that that would have been um, and so we what 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 we had was a was a board of directors that were were very keen on seeing that the company company grow um, and we were doing reasonably well so we we decided that we would we would reinvest um, some of our profits in, into growth um, and and as I said I had a very supportive board all of whom were significant shareholders in the company so when I took over as managing director I had a a brief to um, to grow the business and um, so when I when I did the MBA I made a de- deliberate decision to um, to in the organisational behaviour subject which was one of the last ones that I did I chose to do um, the merging of professional services firms as my mm-hmm. major assignment mm-hmm. um, and so I think I actually learnt an awful lot out of out of that uh, out of that subject and and doing all of the research that that goes into preparing an assignment like that and. Um, it, it held me in good stead, really, for the for the acquisitions that we did, and I, I suppose one of the one of the strongest messages that I got was that um, is that an acquisition or a merger is not unlike a marriage, and and that is that um, for the marriage to be successful or for a merger to be successful, there needs to be more communication after the event, after the marriage, after the after the merger than there is beforehand. Um, and so I, I think I can I can confidently say that um, not one of the mergers or acquisitions that that we that we did at Brown Consulting um, was one that we wouldn't, with the benefit of hindsight, have have done it. Right. So so um, hundred if the definition of a successful acquisition is one which, with the benefit of hindsight, you'd have still done it, then we were batting a hundred percent. And and I and I think a large part of that is the is the focus on culture that we had before. Um, consummating the deal and, and and the focus on continuing communication uh, that we had after after the the deal. There's just so much so, so much history of where people don't consider the alignment of cultures before before deciding to to merge two businesses. Uh, and, and then there's also just so many examples of where the businesses come together, that the money exchange changes hands, and then people go off and. And, uh, and and don't worry about sort of maintaining the relations and, and making people feel welcome and integrating them into the new company. Mm. There's quite a, a few different elements of that brief um, part of yeah. our conversation that I'd really like to explore. So um, firstly, uh, I find it really interesting that you, um, you deliberately chose a particular subject in your MBA. Yeah knowing that you had outcomes that you wanted to achieve. So just in relation, firstly, um, had you stepped into the MD role before you did the MBA or did you step into the MD role as a result of doing the MBA? No, they both happened at around about the same time. I, right. I, I, gradu- I, I, I graduated from the Masters in Law in 2001 yep. and the MBA in 2002. There was, there was some overlap but right. I was doing subjects in both at the same time. Um, I think what had happened though is that uh, the organisational behaviour subject is a compulsory subject but you can actually choose the topic for your major assignment. So it was the topic of merging professional services firms that I, that I chose. And is that and, something that you discussed with the, the um, members of the board? You, uh, I've got a clear vision of this is what I'd like to do and achieve within the organisation. Was it or was it kind of bit as it as circumstantial? 
No, it was probably more a matter, it just seemed like the obvious thing to do and so I got stuck in to do it. I mean, I, I was also um, the, uh, one, of the, one of the larger shareholders in the company as well. Right. So what was good for, for, for the company was good for me, for me also. And yep. um, I mean, I put myself through that, through that M- MBA and um, you know, I chose the subjects and chose the topics that I thought were going to be best for my career. But also, but, and, and in being best for my career, it was also going to be best for the company. So you must have been cohort one, were you? Or cohort two of the EMBA at QUT. Uh, I'm not not sure the the master. Of, I, I was through the. I was one of the first that went through the master of applied law. Yeah. Um, so in fact, I, I think we were the the first graduates in that particular degree. Right. Um, in the in the executive. Um, MBA at uh, University of Queensland, it was. University, University, University of Queensland. Queensland. Right. No, I think they'd been running it for some right. time. Right, sure. Okay. And, um, okay, so uh, I think there's a lot of um, people who go and do an MBA because they believe that it's just a qualification that yeah. I need to have. It's almost a hygiene factor and it's just expected. I don't think there's a lot of people who really, uh, you know, strategically think about their mm. MBA and how to ensure that it best meets the needs of their career and their business. Um, and obviously that created some great outcomes for you. Talking now about the fact that you've pretty much had a 100% record in terms of successful mm-hmm. um, uh, M&As, and you talked about culture, um, you know, what were some of the ways that you looked at the culture piece prior to the acquisition to really make sure that from that side of things, things were going to work well? Well, there are a variety of things that we used to do, but the, um, the, the, the classic technique that we used was to, was to get a, um, a business consultant that, we, that we'd worked with many, many times um, to go into, into a target organisation um, and, and interview their staff and their clients uh, with a series of selected questions to see what sort of responses that we that we got back. Um, now, obviously, confidentiality is key in these things because not every business that gets into not every deal that gets into due diligence gets to a conclusion. Sure. And, and the and the, the the vendors or the selling shareholders are very uh, particular about maintaining confidentiality. So we used to for that reason we used to use an external consultant so that they could go in without being branded WP Brand and Partners or Brown Consulting. Um, and, uh, and and they could portray to the clients and to the staff that they are assisting the target firm with their strategic planning work and yep. so on. And, yep. and in a sense, that, that is what they were doing. Sure. Um, so they, they, these, were business, these were consultants that knew um, my business intimately. So they were able to, to tell by talking to the clients and talking to the staff whether this was a business that was aligned. Um, and, and the sort of thing that I'm talking about, about here... And there's no right and wrong answer. There's multiple cultures in professional services firms. None are necessarily better than others, but it is important that that, that when you're acquiring a business, that you acquire a business that has a similar culture. Um, now, so, some businesses are, are business-focused to the um, exception of everything else. It's all about... Um, how much money can we bill? Um, getting you know, getting the most out of the staff members on every given minute. You know, don't spend any money on on training. Don't spend any money on this or that or anything else. Just maxi- maximize every, every dollar. Um, the the other extreme, of course, is the is the engineering firms for whom it's only about the engineering. And, and if they can win engineering awards for technical excellence, then that's more important than being profitable. Um, both at both of those extremes, there's I can give you examples of, of very successful 
engineering businesses. Mm. Um, but uh, but those but but to have those two businesses come together would be would be a recipe for dis- for disaster. Where one is focused only on the money, and the other is focused only on the engineering. Um, so so the brand consulting business, I think, um, was one that was to the right of centre, if you like. We we were very proud of the engineering that we did and we, we spent a lot of money on training and we put our people through, um, you know, masters of engineering and other things to build their skills. But we but we also made sure that we got the we got the business side right. The invoices were done on time. The project we project we did um, billing projections on a regular basis. Accounts were always done. We we uh, the corporate governance was covered. So we we ran the the business a, as a very a professional company, um, but um, without but without making it the be all and end all. Sure. And so, uh, when you're looking at a potential acquisition target, I imagine you're looking at them on that spectrum from hardcore non-commercial engineers to hardcore commercial. I mean, yep. did you have a preference if um, you know if a company lay one way of the spectrum or the other as to whether they were a more, uh, they were a culture that would be easier to integrate for you. Well, we just simply wouldn't go with one that was at at, at either right. at either extreme. Sure. Okay. Um, so, so in the course of um, meeting with them and and, uh, and getting to know them, we, we we had a sense of of uh, of whether the the cultures would fit. And there were a number that we, after we'd had the initial discussions, we agreed that we just, we wouldn't proceed any further with with further discussions. Um, so by the time we actually got to doing the formal due diligence, we had a pretty fair idea that the cultures were going to align. Um, so we we did. I can only remember one or two occasions where where as a consequence of the of the formal cultural due diligence that we didn't proceed to further further discussions. Okay. Um, but um, my view was that I, I always spent the money and the time on the cultural due diligence before we spent one cent on on accountants or lawyers. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, um, you, you, the, the, you forget about the price you've paid and you forget about everything else. If the cult, if the culture's not right, then nothing else matters. So we, we, we always made sure the cult, there was a cultural fit before we spent any money on the other professions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you managed a business that grew from 40 staff to 650 yeah. over not a, I mean, over a reasonably short period 11 or 12 years, yeah. What did you find in terms of yourself and your own attributes that you really needed to focus on and, and either improve or change to deal with the, you know, that massively changed scope of responsibility? Uh, well, what I what I found is that is that is that what is just so important is to surround yourself with people that are every bit, if not better, than you are at at, at different things. Um, I mean, the truth of it is that is that there's a number of aspects to what consulting engineers do that I I don't have any great expertise in. I'm not I'm not an IT expert. Sure. I, I know I know enough to understand. Um, what we need to do and what we shouldn't be doing, but it's important to have uh, you know very very good IT people who know how how to get the best bang for their buck in, in because it can be a very very expensive area. Um, I had good marketing people that we brought in over time. Uh, we ended up with a very very capable HR you know team of people in HR. But most but most importantly, I, I I found that empowering people um, to make decisions and to get on with things was was what really enabled the brand consulting business to to flourish. Um, I'm not somebody that believes that micromanaging people um, gets the best results. It, 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 it might mean that you have more 
you know, you might sleep better at night if you're knowing everything that's going on in a business, but I just don't think a business is going to flourish unless you allow the people the opportunity to make mistakes. Um, because, you know, what's the saying? The person that's never made a decision is the only one who's never made a mistake. Right, sure. Yeah, you know, so so we, we, um, we were very fortunate um, that in having some very talented people all around the country in, in senior management roles. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we created a real sense of team teamwork amongst the the shareholders in Brown Consulting, and I think that stood us in very good stead. And do you think there were any um, specific initiatives or things that you did? I mean, you got these great people in, you know, you gave yeah. them empowerment to achieve what they needed to, you allowed them the opportunity to make mistakes, hopefully not too often. Yeah. But, you know, were there other things that you did to really enable that team to flourish and be successful? Well, I, I think one of the most important things we did is we broadened the shareholding. Um, now, I can't take credit for this because it had started when I took over as managing director. Um, there was originally um, five of us that, that owned the company and, uh, and, and my predecessor uh, got the ball rolling with bringing in some minority shareholders. So we probably had another two or three people. Um, but uh, but, but we, then, we then, as a team, we took that to the next level. So when, when, we, when we identified people that we thought could really add to the success of the business, then we, we, we gave them the opportunity to come, in, come on board as, as shareholders of the company. And, um, and, and what we used to do is we used to value the shares at a price that made it affordable and attractive for them. So, so not only did it um, entice people to join us, it, but it also ensured that our, our best people stayed because um, you, know, you couldn't be a, an owner of the company if you weren't an employee. And, um, and, and the dividend streams and the, and, and the growth in the value of the shares and so on was, was, was very attractive. People, it wasn't unusual for people to earn more money out of, out of their shareholding than they did out of, out of their salary for, um, for, the, for those who, who uh, you know, made a significant investment. So it, um, it, it, was, a, it was a good... It was a it was a good investment, and it and it meant that you know very very few of our senior management or uh, and shareholders ever left. Mm -hmm. And at what point did the strategy change from acquire to be acquired? Um, to be honest, we're probably a um, a victim of it, victim's not quite the right word, but I think you'll you'll know what I mean. We were we were a victim of our own success in, in that. Um, as, as, we, as we grew bigger, the, the company became more valuable. And, and even though we used to value the shares quite, um, uh, quite a, at quite an attractive level, um, we just simply weren't able, weren't able to identify enough uh, shareholders to come in at the bottom to allow the, 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 the original founders of the business to, to exit at the top. Um, so we, we, we got to the point where we needed to make a decision on which way we were going to go. So we, we, we were looking at, at potentially public listing down the track and we, there were a number of fairly significant mergers that we were looking at which would have given us the scale to be able to do that. Um, but as is quite common in this industry, um, whilst we were knocking on the doors of potential acquisition targets, people were knocking on our door. So every three or four months, we'd have someone approach us to see if we wish to join them. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, the approach that we reached, that we got from Calibre was was um, of a of a structure and and at a level that was uh, you know too good too good for us to pass up. Sure, and uh, along the way, I note too there are a couple of interesting things in terms of your own. Uh, orientation, one towards the sort of the green movement and yeah. uh, some of your initiatives there. I'm interested in learning more about that. I'm also interested in learning more about the uh, Dream Big Scholarship. Yeah, well, th well there's two, two aspects there. The first one is the uh, 
is the environmental sustainability sustainability of in in development. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm a, a great believer in that if you're going to do development, then you need to do it in a way that that, that enhances the environment and not damages the environment. So there were two things that uh, that I two two uh, initiatives that I got involved in. The first one was the Australian Green Development Forum, where I was one of the founding founding board members of that, uh, and that was an organisation that was that was set up to promote sustainable development, and, and I participated. In in, in that for a number of years before it was time to pass the baton on to somebody else. Um, perhaps as a, as a consequence of my role in that, the uh, Urban Development Institute, which is a, an industry body for the, de- for the, for the development industry, yep. um, they approached, I, I was on the board of that, of that um, industry association and uh, they, they approached me to be the founding chairman of the Enviro Development Initiative. And Enviro Development is a, is a ratings tool, if you like, that developments can use to promote their environmental um, uh, sustainability uh, characteristics to potential purchasers and, and to stakeholders. And, and so we, we, we came up with something there that was, uh, that was very, very successful. And, um, and, and I think it played a role in, in changing um, the activities of, of property developers, because um, if you had an environmental development um, tag, then uh, then very often you could sell your product at a, at a premium to to developments that didn't have it. Um, we f- and we but, but we also found that a number of developers, both both private and public, I think felt that it was good good for their own reputation, the the, the image of their own companies to to do developments that had the environmental development certification. Um, so that's uh, that's going stronger and stronger today. So. So that's getting bigger and bigger. It's now that that's been rolled out right across Australia. So um, you know, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of. I mean, right. I, 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 whilst I, I was the the inaugural chair of that initiative, there were a great many people that played a role in, in getting that up and running. Brian Stewart, who was the chief executive of the UDIA at the time, was probably the, was was really one of the driving people behind that. And, and, was, and he had some great staff that were working with us as well. And so Queensland-led initiative in terms of Australia, was that something that you'd seen happening overseas and you were trying to mirror or was it a really a fresher start? Uh, we'd seen some, some similar uh, initiatives that were more um, more targeted at the built environment. Okay. Um, so what we what we saw was it was a gap in the market for something that was that could be targeted at the urban development, the the, the new communities, the new subdivisions, uh, the the, uh, the the products that were in the market at the time uh, were more suited to to uh, to buildings. And mm. as I said, and so we were looking for something that that could be applied to uh, to roads um, and, and the other infrastructure that goes into building new housing estates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now that's a national uh, UDIA initiative, or is it broader and even outside of the UDIA? No, it's a UDIA initiative. Right. So the UDIA, UDIA charge a fee for this because okay. it's uh, quite. Exp- there's a lot of work that goes into mm-hmm. in, into assessing and um, and judging the the, uh, the the developments that apply for certification. So um, it's a, it's an it's also an income stream for the for the UDIA, but it's also a very uh, a very important community initiative. Sure. Okay. And what about the uh, dream? big scholarship program uh, well, one of the things that I'm very keen on is uh, is getting more and more women into into engineering uh, one of the problems that the industry has is that um, not enough not enough women or women aren't necessarily encouraged to when they when they leave high school to choose engineering as a, as a career path so if we're seeking to have um, more women into the boardrooms of engineering firms and and around the executive committees of engineering firms, then I, I form the view that we just simply need to have more women that choose engineering as a career. So, so rather than um, go looking at the universities to employ engineers, 
uh, where you'd find that maybe maybe five percent of the graduates were women. I decided that we'd try and and come up with an initiative that encouraged more young 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 women to take up engineering as a career. So so we decided that we would um, we would target the high schools. So what so what what we did right around Australia was was with the uh, with the approval of the schools um, career officers, we'd have some of our engineers and and our human resource professionals. Uh, go into the high schools, into into grade grade twelve, and, and provides uh, information to, uh, to to young ladies um, to try and encourage them to take up engineering as opposed to sort of the law or sure. accounting or medicine or something else. Uh, and, and to and to assist and make that choice, we gave them scholarships. So if people wanted to join join our program, uh, we we gave we we gave them a scholarship, which gave them the the, the spending money, so they they didn't necessarily need to go and get a part time job uh, whilst. They were at university, we, we gave them vacation, employment, and, and then a guaranteed job at the end of end of their uh, end of their degree. When you um, say we, you're talking about Brown, the Brown Consulting right. business. That's right, right, right around Australia. So it was uh, something that we that every one of our offices um, uh, promoted. And was that uh, adopted by other engineering companies jumping on the the same cause, or were you really doing that in isolation? No, we were just doing that ourselves. Right. I, I think there are other engineering firms that are, that are probably probably doing something similar, um, but um, I'm not aware of anyone that's going that's targeting the high schools to try and actually ensure that there are more female students right. doing engineering. And and how did you measure the success of that program? Um, well, there are only a certain number, I suppose, because of the size of our business. There are only so many graduates that we could put into into our system each year. So, so we we basically decided that um, that where that where possible, the, we would we would put three female female students on on this graduate on this program on this scholarship program. So, um, the, I guess the the success was in in seeing the young ladies go all the way through their engineering degree and then and then take jobs with uh, sure. with Brown Consulting at the end of their degree, and uh, and there are quite a few. Young ladies that are graduate engineers within within Brown Consulting or Calibre Consulting as as it is today. And if you look, I mean, uh, broadly at the industry now, what what are you sensing that there is a change? Do you think more women are being attracted to engineering as a viable uh, profession for themselves? Well, I, th- I think there is, and there's a number of reasons that it, that it, that 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 is happening. One is that uh, environmental engineering is is much more. Uh, there's much more focus on environmental engineering today than than was 20 or 30 years ago, and so uh, many women are attracted to the env- environmental engineering engineering area. I think also as a consequence of the of the direct intervention that uh, chief executives like myself and others, because I think all engineering firms are now doing the same thing, is making the the workplace more um, more uh, female friendly. Sure. So some of the practices and, and um, that that might have been thought of as acceptable in an engineering office twenty or thirty years ago would certainly be seen as being um, archaic and completely unacceptable today. Mm-hmm. So no no longer is a is an is a consulting engineering office and for that matter a construction site somewhere that that women um, don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Oh, I started my career with James Hardy, and mm. uh, certainly, you know, from what I remember of the time to now, there'd be no way that uh, organisations could. Uh, Behave in the way that they used to back in the well, sort of the mid to late eighties. Yeah. I mean, go, you go back thirty years or so to when to when I started, thirty five years, and you'd go into a a, a site shed 
and see some of the calendars that are on oh, the sure. walls. So I think I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, that 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 type of thing is just completely unacceptable mm-hmm. today. And I know that when I became managing director, there may st- still back in those days have been a little bit of it around. But the, uh, the the message I put out there was: do not have anything in the office that you wouldn't be comfortable your grandmother having. Uh, seeing and yeah. uh, and you know we, we just changed the culture of the industry and it's uh, certainly for the far far better the grandma test is a good one isn't it <laughs> um, okay and so uh, Brown eventually is sold to Calibre yeah. Calibre at the time being a private organisation that then goes through a listing in its own right yeah. you know uh, talk us through uh, you know how you felt about it you know going from being the managing director of Brown into uh, another organisation and then that organisation going through its own uh, a massive change uh, mm. through a listing process what, how, how was that experience for you? Well, it was a very positive experience. I, I, I learned an awful lot out of that. Um, I mean, as a, as a private, having been with, with Brown Consulting, you know, for, for 23, 24 years, I was, I was somewhat limited in the exposure that I received um, to how other organisations work. Um, and, uh, and joining Calibre, which was, which was a much larger company, um, I mean, Brown, Brown Consulting um, at the time that I left was, was turning over 80 or $90 million. The Calibre business was, was many multiples of that. So, so the experience that I got by, um, by uh, attending the board meetings of the public company, uh, attending the executive committee meetings of the, of the, of the broader group uh, were things that I think set, had, had put me in, or set me in good stead. Um, so that I'd say that you know that's that's been a personal experience. C- certainly, there 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 are some things that you give away. There's a level of autonomy as the managing director of a smaller company um, that that don't continue over into being the uh, managing director of a subsidiary of a larger company. Mm-hmm. So not 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 everything um, you'd say was was better for, mm-hmm. from a personal perspective, but but on, but on balance, the experience was was a very good one, and uh, and I, I did learn a lot. Okay, great. So you've talked a lot about a. Uh you know, some of the positive achievements and, and uh, the great outcomes that have happened as a result of your leadership through your career. What's an example of a time that you look back on and you'd say, boy, if I'd had my time over again, I would have done that differently. You know, one of those uh, uh, moments where in hindsight, uh, you would have preferred a different outcome. Oh, there's always little little things that you, that, that come up along the way. Things where um, you know you learn you learn as you as you go. I mean, I, I'm, I'm as a as a consequence, and I probably wouldn't won't speak speak about specific issues because that might identify sure. people. But but um, I think one of the things that I have learned um, over the years is that if you see a problem. Um, then you need. Then you should confront it. So if there's a staff member that you think is is creating creating problems, um, then in my experience, those problems don't get better over time. They get worse. So if I was giving uh, advice to people, one of the things that I've learned, I suppose, would be f- far far better to sit down with someone and talk through issues than to than to ignore them and, and hope that they resolve themselves because because they they rarely do. Mm. They rarely do. So um, certainly uh, communicating with people is. Uh, is, is just so is just so important and and so, sometimes it's better for everybody if people just exit a business sure yeah, you know people get an opportunity to go off and do other things in, in an environment that they're more at home at some sometimes people don't leave because they just simply um, you know can't bring themselves to re- resign maybe they feel as if they're letting letting you or other people down and uh, and occasionally you know employers can be just a little bit too slow to act if if if, if you find employ employees that are just not not fitting in for whatever reason. Okay. 
I mean, there's a lot of people coming out of university and they're mm. starting their careers and they're going and doing MBAs and they're, they're getting good formal qualifications yeah. in order to best position themselves to achieve, you know, their highest professional uh, opportunities. Um, as somebody who has achieved, you know, a lot and, and some uh, great outcomes, what other than communication, which is, a, you know, something you've spoken about a number of times, mm. what do you think are some of the key lessons or the pieces of advice you'd offer to somebody who really wants to grow to being in the position of CEO or managing director? Well, I think what someone should do is relatively early in their career, they should spend some time analysing what their goals and aspirations are. Again, if I focus on an engineering company, engineering companies need some very, very capable and highly technical uh, technically competent professionals, um, but but at the same time they need some very strong and dynamic leaders. Uh, very very rarely do you get those skills in the same in the same person. So what I, what I'd say to say to uh, people that are running engineering firms, not only the people that are running engineering firms, but also the people that are seeking to progress within them, is that the um, professional development as an engineer is is just as important as professional development as a, as a business person. Um, and so people need to have a think about what, what do they really want to be? Do they, do they want to be the best engineer that they can possibly be? And if so, that's what they should, should strive for. They should go back to university and, and you, can never, you can never stop learning. But at the same time, if, if, uh, if, if having had a look at the, the technical and professional a, a, um, attributes of engineers that you just say, well, maybe I'd just like to go into the business side. I'm, I'm more about dealing with people and dealing with the banks and, mm-hmm. and the clients and everything else. Um, then fo- focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what, what I'd say to you know, young, young professionals is if your employers uh, won't put you through um, professional development, then put yourself through sure. because it's a, you know, it might seem like a lot of money, yeah. but um, you, know, you can never spend too much money on your own career. Oh, I agree. I paid my own way through my executive MBA mm. back in about 2002, and then it was a small fortune. But uh, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, you've, if you want the uh, the success and the opportunities that come with that, mm. you need to be prepared to invest in yourself. If I'm reading that comment correctly, you know, I think that there is a tendency, particularly in professional services firms, that somebody's great on the tools. The only real career pathing that's available to them is to move them into leadership roles, and often you end up with people in leadership roles who are great on the tools. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's and right. So I, it, it's that, a common problem. Yeah. It's a common problem. Yeah. So what you're saying is for people who are about to embark on that part of their career is to be honest with themselves, and, and if they have a preference to be on the tools, become the best person on the tools rather than trying to pretend to be something that is not your you know, your true desire. Well, that, that's right. And, and if I was talking to um, the, the executives of other engineering firms, it would also be to recognise to recognize that um, one of the best ways to grow a very strong structural engineering business is, is to have the best structural engineers in town working for you, mm-hmm. but, but not to have them as, uh, as the business managers, but yeah. to have them as highly capable structural engineers who can, who can tweak the design of a build, building better than anybody else. Um, so, so sometimes engineering firms don't see the value in in investing in the in the professional skills. Well, well, um, I'd suggest to them that they should have another think about that because I think it's very important. Mm. And then there's another whole attribute to Gary Spence other than the uh, business leader, mm. and that's uh, your involvement um, in politics. Uh, mm. Tell me a little bit about how that first came to be something you're attracted to, and I no doubt there've been some excellent lessons learned along the way there as well. 
Yeah, well, I, I joined the the Liberal Party as a 22 year old, so so 28 years ago, um, probably without any great ambition or goals back then. It was just a it was just a um, a philosophy that I that I agreed with, and so I I joined joined the Liberal Party uh, down at the Algesta Sunnybank Hills branch, or, or back back at, back in those days, and um, and and got got involved at a, at a, at a at a local level, handing out how to vote cards on election day, occasionally manning information booths and, and the so on. And, and I did that for, for, for many, many years. Um, what, what changed for me was that I, I moved um, into an office in the city and, and so I moved my membership into what's known as the Brisbane City Business Branch, mm-hmm. uh, which I remain a member of today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as a consequence of membership of that branch, I, I was introduced to the, to the party president of the day, a fellow called Warwick Perra. Um, and uh, one thing led to another. Warwick asked me if I'd run to be vice president of the Liberal Party. To be brutally honest, I wasn't quite sure what the vice president of a political party did. That this is now probably ten or eleven years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I uh, I ran for vice president. I, I I managed to get elected, and um, and have been a, a whole lot more involved ever ever since then. Um, Warwick uh, retired um, as a uh, from the presidency of the Liberal Party um, after the two thousand and seven. Uh, federal election mm-hmm. um, when uh, when um, John Howard uh, asked him if he would if he would stay on for that election um, and so once once he retired um, I then um, managed to get elected to fill the casual vacancy mm-hmm. and um, I was a big fan um, of a merger of the Liberal and National parties I could see a great value in in us doing that and and and, uh, and taking on the Labor Party and and seeking to take government in Queensland without fighting fighting amongst each other. So um, I, I became the uh, the president of the Liberal Party, um, uh, initiated discussions with the with Bruce McIver, the president of the of the National Party, and I guess the the, the rest is rest is history. The mm-hmm. the parties were merged back in back in two thousand and eight, um, and it was a. Um, we, we uh, we've had a, an amazing ride since then. We've got about fourteen thousand members. I think it's probably the strongest political force in Australia at the moment. Um, we've had some great results at federal elections. We had an extraordinary result in the two thousand and twelve state election. Um, that uh, uh, we obviously came back to the field a little bit in the two thousand and fifteen federal election. But I'm I'm working very very closely with Lawrence Lawrence Springborg um, mm-hmm. now to to try and take government back. We. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, when the merger happened, um, I, I was elected the vice president of the, of the LNP. Yeah. Uh, Bruce McIver, who who was the president of the Nationals, became the president of the Liberal National Party, and mm-hmm. and he and I had worked together very very closely over the over the, the last seven plus years um, to uh, to grow to grow the party. Um, Bruce retired a couple of weeks ago. Um, right. Uh, after uh, ten years. Uh, very, very strong and dedicated service. So uh, the party's asked me to to um, become the acting president, uh, which uh, which I'm a role that I'm fulfilling today. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, a state council meeting in November when the party will will choose choose a new president. Right, which no doubt uh, is an onerous responsibility. Uh, balancing that and a corporate commercial career yeah. and you mentioned uh, right at the beginning that you're just about to graduate from the Australian Institute of Company Directors mm. Directors course. So looking into the future, you know, um, uh, look 10 years um, down the track, where would you like to be? What would you like to be doing professionally? Well, um, I, I left the Calibre business having sold having sold Brown Consulting to Calibre uh, th- three and a half years ago. I, uh, I, depart- I left that business back in April of this year. Um, 
So, uh, so I'm, I'm now uh, focusing on the political side for the time being. Um, I have had a number of uh, approaches over the last few months to take non-executive board and in one case a, a chairman's role for another company. And um, those um, those offers that I've received are, are quite enticing. And I think in time I'll, I'll probably take take um, two of them up. Right. Um, but I, I'd like to see a future perhaps that uh, that, that involves a, a continuing role with the with the LNP in some capacity or another, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe uh, you know three three or four board positions um, to uh, where where I think I can make a difference. Right. And um, and just to round out the conversation because we haven't spoken yeah. about you know the kind of things that you love to do when you're not working. You know yeah. what, what's Gary up to when he's not at work. Well, I must admit, I, I do like to travel. My, my wife and I travel whenever whenever we get some time. So, um, and and very often we put the travel together with one of our other passions, which is uh, which is red wine. So <laughs> we we, uh, we do we do enjoy our red wine, and right. um, we we have been fortunate enough to to visit some of the wine regions in Italy, uh, South America. Um, North America, so uh, very often the travel and the and the wine, uh, as in terms of our hobbies, can be can can be put together. But um, with with the commitments at the LNP, uh, obviously we don't get as much uh, time to travel as, as perhaps we as perhaps we otherwise sure. like to. So that might be something for, for further for further down the track. But Fair enough. but but certainly certainly the travel travel is a bug that we've uh, just about caught. Well, I can tell you, uh, red wine is a recurring theme of this podcast. Yep. Uh, that is often up on uh, people's list of priorities. Yep. What about from a sort of a health and wellness sort of regime? Uh, no doubt, all of your responsibilities take its toll. How do you remain motivated and and keep enough petrol in the tank? Well, well, I do go to the gym a couple of times a week. Um, I have a personal trainer who who um, uh, who, I, who I go go and see a couple of times a week, and that I think that's very important because occasionally when you when you're really busy and you just can't find time to do stuff, if if, if you treat the uh, the gym work as an appointment and it's in your diary and you know someone's going to be waiting there for you, then you'll then you'll get there, and so that's something that I, I strongly recommend. Um, I, I do get out on the bike occasionally. I try and do that at least once a week. Do forty or fifty kilometres okay. uh, on the bike, and uh, you know that's that's certainly good exercise good exercise as well. So between the gym and the bike, you know that uh, that keeps me pretty fit. So you uh, you earn your red wine. I do, I do. Oh, it ju- justifies the the uh, couple of glasses a week that I have. Oh no worries. Well, no doubt uh, there'll be a couple of glasses drunk tonight at your uh, graduation dinner. Yeah, I think uh, there will. Excellent. So uh, thanks. I really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed being on the podcast. Yep. And I'm sure people will get great value out of listening into this conversation. So thanks again, Gary. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, Richard. It's been my pleasure. Okay. Bye bye. So another great conversation, this time with Gary Spence. And I think the thing that I'm finding really fascinating with all of the discussions to date is how busy these people are. I think that anyone who expects to achieve the highest in their career, either as a C-suite executive or a non-executive director, have to accept the fact that they're going to have a very busy life. And in particular with Gary, when you think about everything he's achieved in his career with Brown Consulting, Coupling that with his uh, work that he's done within the LNP party and also his particular focus on initiatives around the environmental sector and the promotion of opportunities to females to join the engineering space, it would be fair to say Gary is a particularly busy guy. And so for him to take this hour out and have a chat to me about his career is greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to joining you on the podcast again in the future. 
Thank you.